This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the digital industry. Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to a special edition of our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research. I'm here joined in our studio with Gaurav Sinha, an Associate Director of Modern Alpha and Asset Allocation at Wisdom Tree. We have a great guest, Srinivas Thiruvadantai, the Director of Research at the Jerome Levy Forecasting Center, who's very active on Twitter at TSRIT3. Thanks for joining us on the program today. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, Srinivas, you do, you're, you're sort of from India. Gaurav, you're from India. There's a lot going on in the in the economy, the election cycle. I want to talk a little bit about both of your thoughts on what's happening, the upcoming elections, and just the markets in general. But Srinivas, give us some of your background. What, what, uh, tell us a little bit about growing up in, in India. Yeah, so I grew up in India in the 70s. So back then, it was still very, so- it was not exactly socialist, but there were all kinds of shortages, whether it was for sugar, rice, everything we had to stand in line. And the, and the best thing is if you to get a landline phone, it took 10 years. To get a scooter, it took five years. You know, that's the kind of situation that was there. I had a fairly good, good uh, upbringing, so I, I can't complain. But, but the average Indian's life was pretty miserable, and everybody had to stand in lines. Um, somehow, in the 80s, all of these things vanished because India decided to open up its economy and do away with many of the socialist controls. Popularly, the, in, in the, the time when people see India as having actually opened up is 1991, the year they did away with a lot of the controls. But actually, in the 80s itself, a lot of the controls were actually uh, taken away. And so things started, you know, there were many more consumer products that were available, and suddenly there were no shortages, and, you know, widespread shortages were not there, and things, things life started to improve. And in 1991, they under pressure from IMF because India was about to default, but didn't it didn't default. India is one of the few countries that has never defaulted on its uh, external borrowings. Um, and uh, they finally did away with all uh, controls on, on licensing for, for production and things like that. They just completely did away with it. And since then, it's been just a glorious 20, 25 years of 6, 7% growth. Gaurav, how did that experience compare with your experience? Right, so I'm I'm from a small town in in northern India, and uh, even you know I grew up in India in the 80s. But India is a country that got independence in 1947, and when we talk of India, not many people realize that it is now of the size of United Kingdom. It's it's foreign, you know, it, it, India is almost the same size as UK. It's larger than France. It's larger than Italy. It's larger larger than a lot many traditional economies that we think of. So it's a pretty staggering achievement for a country like India, which has spent a good part of its independent journey as being a socialist country or on the borderline of being a socialist country uh, uh, and coming up from a time where people didn't have, you know, any, they had to stand in lines and all kinds of uh, examples that Sri gave to a point where it is a, a real economic powerhouse. 
Uh, it's interesting that we are having this conversation right now because India is right now going through the largest democratic exercise in the world with almost one billion voters. So it is pretty amazing. Uh, in and my this is opinion. not like a one-day election <laughs> process. This no. is a long-term <laughs> process. Multiple days. Multiple it's, days. A month. Yeah, it starts. Uh, it started on April 11th, and uh, it will go on until May 19th, and the results would be declared on May 23, May 23rd. It's estimated to be an expense of $7 billion. That's the largest, most expensive election ever happened on this planet. Uh, there are going to be more than 1 million polling stations. There's a polling station in the mountains of Himalayas, which is 15,000 feet above sea level, for a sole hermit who meditates over there. There's <laughs> another polling station in the lush green forests of southern tropical India, uh, which are infested by often you know, leopards and tigers, uh, for villagers and the tribals who live in that region. So uh, the scale of you know this entire exercise is pretty staggering in my opinion. Now, they're also like leapfrogging technology in so many ways. I would I, Here's like a prediction that they're going to be the first one to eventually do all the elections via their phone. <laughs> right. What do you no, think? You no, know, it's possible because India has actually now, uh, I mean, of course, India India leapfrogged the, bypassed the landline thing right? because it took so many years to get a landline. <laughs> By the time the cell phone revolution came, just wait a long enough time and then there were obviously many more cell phones within a few years. Everybody has a cell phone. And now we are, many more people have smartphones now, right? I mean, it's the cheap smartphones. You know, most people can't afford the, the Apple iPhone, but there are tons of cheaper uh, Chinese-make ones which are available all over. Plus, plus, people are much more mobile savvy, right? Because they have been forced, especially a couple of years ago, there was a thing called demonetization where they took like 86% of the currency in circulation out. And what they did effectively was force people into transact more electronically. Um, using a lot of electronic payment devices, mobile pay devices. Right. They, they give everybody a bank account. They give everybody some kind of ID. This is like where I was going with this technology. Everybody has some kind of ID number. Yeah. And uh, not only does everybody had has this ID number, which is completely biometric in nature, so it has your retina scan and it has your fingerprints. Um, I mean, essentially, if you think about security, it's three levels, right? One, you have your password. Second, you you have like any personal question that you can verify about your life or, you know, uh, any sort of a security question. And third is actually who you are. So this unique identification system in India is based on your identity. It's based on your retina and biometrics. It's pretty sophisticated. But beyond just that having an ID, they've linked that ID with your bank accounts and with your mobile phone number. So what that means is that India is actually now leapfrogging the entire credit card, uh, you know, uh, payments as well. It's directly going to mobile payments. Uh, WhatsApp has just launched uh, a payment I think they are in the process of launching a payment service in India where you can, you know, just pay anybody through your WhatsApp mobile number. India is the largest customer for WhatsApp as well. There are 300 million people using WhatsApp in India. I think in, in the United States, it's less than 50 million. So the numbers, again, it's it's pretty it's, impressive. And it goes one of the things. They already have one of the higher participation rates. But if you could think about how lazy people are in having to go to the voting <laughs> stations, if you could just click a button on the phone, my guess right. is participation would be... Much, much higher. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in, India's participation is fairly good, not in European levels, but, but it's in some states at 70, but it's around 65, 66. It certainly would go yeah, to 90 yeah, yeah. or 100, I mean, if you get that, yeah. What, what, now, 
you made a, an interesting comment on the, the one of the key buzzwords, and I, it's one of the things I was following on Modi that I thought it was actually one of the more impressive things Modi did, and it was also one of the more difficult things. So it, in a way, it was very unpopular, but he did it early enough in this cycle that it may not impact his reelection. But he that demonetization, talk about... You know, it was a short-term economic hit. It, yes. it lowered activity. It was not. It was painful for exactly. some things. But maybe talk why you think he did it, how you think it sets him up for the future, and how it's going to impact this election. So here is here is the thing. I mean, India is a very cash-oriented economy, right? You can't go around. There are not too many places that, especially small mom-and-pop stores, there are tons of them, right? They didn't. They don't accept credit cards. So uh, people always carry wads of cash, but also it is an informal economy. So a lot of activity is not reported and therefore not taxed, right? And there is also a lot of corruption. So which means the corruption money is not necessarily stored in cash, but to undertake the transactions, you do need the cash, which is why these large denomination notes, the 500 rupee and the 1,000 rupee notes, were heavily used in those kind of transactions. Avoid taxes mostly. Yeah, avoid taxes and, you know, somebody's taking a bribe, you know, and... So that was the objective. And there are some telltale signs, and I've written about this, that that you could see, uh, I have a paper on this, that that corruption was on the rise in the 10 years up to the to demonetization. You know, you can't prove it, but there is circumstantial evidence. Uh, and so there was some logic behind doing it, whether this was the best move or not, you know, I can't say. What are the options we do we have? You know, ultimately, the long term, the best option is to actually go after corruption and slowly digitize your economy. But those are long term options. You also have to deal with politics and the promises that you right. made of of going after corruption, corrupt people. So there are realities of life. It's I mean, it's interesting. I mean, you would think getting to that digitization is the right long run thing in a lot of ways. Right. I mean, it, it will help them collect the taxes. Yes. It, I mean, you could say, what do people need the cash for? But besides for these quote-unquote, black market things, illegal activities. And so you could say it was that's why it was it was an interesting, it showed I, some savviness on not being afraid. And so do you think he's, now if you're handicapping the election now, is he, how do you think it's going to play out? I think, I mean, look, the, the Indian elections are, I think, let, let's be honest, this is, we we can put out put out some numbers. We are it's it's a shot in the dark because it's a, a country of a billion people, but not just a country of a, more than a billion people, but billion voters almost. But you're talking about an incredible diversity across the nation. Incredible diversity. There are people who are Silicon Valley level uh, startups, and then you have people who are living in the 16th century. You know, and so um, you are trying to make a collective analysis of these people. Uh, it's never going to be be right. So with that caveat, um, purely based on, I mean, I, I'm an economist, so I look at the economy, you know, Ray Fares type of thinking about what does the economy tell about re-election chances. And based on that, I think it is 50-50, okay, based purely on the e- economy. Um, but I do think the fact that the election, the, the opposition doesn't have a great credibility, uh, they are not that united. And recently we had the, uh, there was a terrorist strike on India in, in Kashmir, um, and I think that plays more to Modi, Modi's image as being uh, a person who's decisive in these matters, who takes, uh, who doesn't take, uh, who's going to act decisively against terrorism. That probably tilts the balance more toward him. That's that's my perception. 
the markets seem to be going up in anticipation of that. They sort of bottomed out earlier this year. Yeah, you had these skirmishes with Pakistan, and it it seems to like it, it seemed to like that skirmish. It didn't seem to be get scared by that. No, it didn't. And the markets have been going up. And in fact, and I, I noted this. If you, I went went and looked at the election since ninety nine, uh, two thousand four, two thousand nine, and uh, two thousand fourteen, um, and you know, the markets in 2004 actually smelled out the the Modi's party was at that time in power, uh, but they lost. It was a surprise loss from the pollster point of view. But the markets were actually smelled it out from the time polling started to the time polling ended. The market was actually drifting down a little bit, not a lot. It was drifting down. Um, and so was the rupee. Uh, especially relative to the other Asian currencies. So it was drifting down. Right now, so the key thing is election started day before, no, yesterday, April 11th. So we'll, we'll have to watch from now to May 23rd. What does the market do? It'll be a great tell. And does the market want Modi or does the market want surprise? The market wants Modi. I mean, for in this case, the market wants Modi, for sure. Yeah. Even though he has not been as much of necessarily uh, a, a, what the market liberals want, in, he's been more of a populist than than a market liberal, truly, in that sense. But still, the market prefers him. They welcomed it very much when he got elected. Yeah, because at the time, the perception was, here is a person who's going to be business-friendly, and he's going to take a lot of business-friendly actions. Um, and he certainly has, I would say, but he's also taken painful actions for business. The demonization. Right? And no, also bankruptcy reform. That's made it... So he's effectively cut out crony capitalism, right? So in India... The bankruptcy process is incredibly long, excruciatingly long. So if you're as a lender, you can't get attached assets. That's you, you're putting up a huge premium on the, on, the, on the interest rate, right, on your credit risk. Um, and so I used to work for ICICI in India. It, it was at the time uh, just a long-term lending institution. It was not a bank like today. So I know that we, when we have a bad loan, even though we had the mortgage and the hypothecation, there's not much you could do. It would take years in, in courts before you could actually attach the assets. Um, what the bankruptcy reform program does is it gives a 90-day time frame to res resolve the bankruptcy process. And actually, they have been able to enforce it against some really big names and actually mm -hmm. get recovery, huge recoveries. In some cases, the recovery has been almost 100%. In some cases, it's been 50, 60, 70%, which, and the historical recovery rates in India have been like 20% or something like that. So it's, that's a huge reform. But it also made it harder for the existing businesses who were had this cozy relationship with the banks, but they would default, but they would never be they would still keep to get to keep the assets. That relationship has been broken. It's interesting that we speak about bankruptcy. Jeremy, if you remember back in 2015, you and I were having the show with the then finance minister of India, Jayant Sinha. And he mentioned three reforms that are at the top of his priority. One was GST, the other was bankruptcy, and the third was complete uh, uh, UID system for every Indian uh, in India. And it amazes me that all those three reforms have been already done. So I think in some sense, Modi already Modi moves at a pace which is way faster than typically what people have been used to of in India. And it is also reflection. And this all ties back to demonetization and the airstrikes and what's going on in election. A lot depends on what the young voters want. The demographics in India are phenomenal. You know, they, there, are, there are going to be more than 200 million young people, first-time voters in this election. And young voters 
do not want the socialist India. They want an India with a decisive leadership, which can move fast, which can do things, and they are fed up of the system where you have to stand in line and you you know they they are hooked up with internet. They see what's going on in the world globally, and Modi knows that. Modi was the first leader who popularized uh, use usage of social media in, in Indian elections, and that played way much to his advantage because he was able to connect with the youth directly rather than going through the regular media. So I think. as long as young india is in favor of uh, you know prime minister modi which again it's hard to predict but based on my feedback and my sense of being on the ground i was in india when the uh, these balakot strikes happened i do feel that if i was a betting man i would bet probably 70% odds of him coming back to power based on your sampling of the billion people <laughs> the five people that you know no. that no that's true india india's like this this elephant right i mean the, the the ancient indian tale of of an elephant and six blind men you can take an anecdote to say oh indians hate modi and you can say take an anecdote and say enough people saying i love modi you know so th- it's it's really tough that's why i put the data to work and i my suspicion is he's going to win but you know another would you take if he's giving you 70 30 odds there which <laughs> are you going to take that bet which are you, which side are you taking or is that the right is that the wrong odds the right odds <laughs> i think they are they're they're, they're good they're about the right odds yeah i mean i i think in terms of interval probabilities because you know i i'm a keynesian and keynes you know had this this uh, very um a little, little less known book called treaties on probabilities it's actually a brilliant book um and where he had a completely different approach to probability theory and he didn't like point estimates for probability so he gave this a range of probabilities that's what he would call interval probability but this also goes back to the debate that uh, Nate Silver and what's his name uh, uh Nassim Taleb or having yeah. anyway so it's a separate digression but <laughs> I, i i i i don't have a disagreement with with the number he is putting okay Yeah but 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 to also on this one, my own anecdote I actually happened to be in India on the day demonetization happened <laughs> okay so and and there was a huge amount of disruption because suddenly you had to change all sure. your 1005 rupee notes you were standing in line in in the in the bank it took like half an hour or an hour depending on the place you know so it, there was a little bit of disruption for sure but i did ask around a few people and one of the guys who was uh, who who drove my cab back on on the way to to the airport and he was telling me i, I was telling me he said yeah there's been a disruption but you know you know he said you know sir it requires some guts to do that that's what i said that's what he said it requires some guts to do that right uh, and and you know he he didn't he didn't say he was not angry as long as you know if you're not in that part doing the corruption yeah then oh, then it's, you're happy Yeah. I mean it's painful in the short run but yeah. you're like you're looking at it, yeah that's good. Well Prime Minister Modi's political party won the biggest Indian state right after demonetization and they won they which they had never won in last 20 years or so. So which is my home state. So essentially that shows that even though an average Indian was very unhappy and not not unhappy but had a high degree of inconvenience with the decision but broadly speaking they were happy with the decision that you know that the fat cats are being yeah. actually being brought to book now now in, and in 2013 you had the fed raising rates they were one of the fragile five they had fiscal deficits they had you know it, uh, rupee depreciated yeah, by 25% yeah. Yeah. and and part of that's the tax collection to the point on hey we're going to some of this stuff demonetizing is partly to get better taxes yeah. and the gst though you mentioned another thing gorav on one things they were rolling out which also was somewhat messy but how do you think GST is going from that perspective <laughs> GST is also working well i mean see again you know india's this you think that it's a it's a huge country with a massive domestic market but it's actually not because it's a completely fragmented market so you are going from philadelphia to new york 
you're you have to pay 10 taxes on the way you know that's the whole problem there is a there is an interstate tax that comes in when you're crossing the state border then there will be a city tax on new york when you're going out just imagine it's not it's as if you're two separate countries right um and what gst does is to do away with all that it regularizes the essentially it is interstate commerce yeah. <laughs> you know class and and essentially it regularizes these things and more important by making everything electronic it brings everything about board so people can't escape the taxes so if you look at the actual tax collection to gdp it has started to improve quite sharply in the last 2 3 years since gst and demonetization right and and on on gst i have a personal anecdote as well when gst was implemented that was 2 days before my day of i was getting married so half of my and as you can imagine like indian weddings are a multiple day affair so first few days the taxes and the bills that we had to sign there were 17 lines of taxes on on the caterers and the you know all the bill payments that we were doing and after gst the next day of the wedding everything was easy so the problems were solved after the wedding <laughs> i know and one of my problems is i got invited to the wedding with only 3 weeks so i didn't get to go because like, it was a july 4th week it was hard for me to get out there but You're a world traveler, Jeremy. You're, you're gonna, you miss something. Indian weddings are 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 something. I think the two of you are going to take me on a trip to India at some point. <laughs> I got to figure that out. But um, how? When you guys, we talked a little bit about just the dynamics of this election. Is there who's is there a surprise party that you're looking at as who can be the sort of curveball that that we should. I mean, we're all talking about Modi, and that's all we're talking about. Who else? Who else should we keep our eyes on? I mean, the main opposition party is is Congress, which historically has led the country most of the time. Um, and so the question is, can Congress pull uh, pull something out of the out of the rabbit uh, rabbit out of the hat? And you know, one of the things that they did was they uh, announced something like a basic income guarantee. Um, in the Indian context, is actually what they've announced is quite significant. So the question is, can it is fiscally is it fiscally possible? And um the other thing is do they have the credibility a lot of people if you interview them what they are saying is now i don't we don't believe that the we will ever see the money you know <laughs> because the congress is synonymous with corruption and the question is can is this money ever going to come to us um and that's part of the problem with that and the other thing is um Uh, the the middle classes are going to be really opposed to it because they feel like okay so we are giving a lot of freebies to to other people um and there is always a fear that most of the tax burden is going to fall on them because middle class find it most hardest to to eliminate to to evade taxes because most of their income is salary which is hard to evade um so that's those are the things that that's hard for for the congress but they could always pull something out because it was a major program and did create some uh some traction whether it actually translates into votes we will know on 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 counting day and now taking even a step higher from the election to the markets and the economy how are you thinking about i mean india is not the quote unquote cheapest market around the world yeah. but it and for an emerging market it tends to be viewed as a higher growth it's not tied to the it's it's not described as being the most globally it's more sort of local consumption but how do you think about where they are from evaluation and an economic growth perspective so you want to go no no you can. so from a valuation perspective they it looks really really expensive and the problem is india never ever gets really cheap except for very rare occasions like in 2008 or 2009 you know it, it, at the very bottom it got got relatively cheap 
and you know there are some other cup one or one other occasion but you really have to wait and you don't know if you're able to ever ever be able to go to get back in uh, on the other hand if you look at the last 20 25 years india is probably the best performing emerging market um, and the other thing with india is it is a little bit uncorrelated even though in the short term financially it is very correlated but if you look at periods where the dollar um, is is appreciating, which is when EMs tend to do poorly, India actually outperforms other EMs. So you have actually better protection in that sense. So if you look at the period from 2014 to 16 when EMs were struggling, um, 2014 to early 2016 when EMs were struggling, India outperformed during that period. So you, what I've seen is when dollar is doing going up, India tends to outperform the other EMs. And is that because they just their business profile tends to be more export or some of the technology, the big large caps sort of becomes more competitive on a dollar basis? And that is part part of the answer. I think there are threefold answer. Your answer is is, is very good. I mean, the, the India's exports are more dollar dependent in that sense, uh, but they are also much more stable. They are not the cyclical things. Uh, the number two thing is India doesn't have actually that much of a dollar liability exposure. There is some corporate debt, but even that, it's not that significant. Um, and the number third number point is when dollar is going up, typically commodity prices are going down. And India is a importer, net importer yeah. of commodities, yeah. and that's why it tends to do well. Right. I mean, I, I think when you speak of India, you're talking about demographics that's almost the size of China. You're talking about the sixth largest economy in the world, $2.5 trillion dollars growing at a 7.5% for a foreseeable future. And this is not me or, you know, any shop on the Wall Street. This is IMF, which has the most idea on what's going on with these emerging countries. So a, a little while I was looking into, you know, large cap companies versus small cap companies across all countries in EM. And what you see is that maximum amount of large cap companies as a percentage have grown their book value in last five years reside in India. And the maximum amount of small cap companies that have generated profits again resigned it in India, not in China or in other EM countries. And it's pretty intuitive, actually. When economies grow at 7.5%, you don't, you as a company don't have to do anything out of the ordinary to, you know, make your bottom line grow. As long as you're running your shop effectively, you would have enough tailwinds to just piggyback on those tailwinds and enjoy the growth of the overall economy. <coughs> so I, I do think that when you have opportunity of the size of India, yes, there will be a certain premium associated with it. The question is that whether that premium is worth it or not. And in my opinion, the numbers are pretty amazing. And this is like once in a lifetime opportunity, probably in, when you look from when you talk about global markets. Once in a lifetime. It's uh, now that, that's but you have a real long term view. This is not just hey before the election. Absolutely. Yet. Now they had they they do move a lot on the elections. Like uh, you know Siegel was talking about earlier today. If if we get a China trade deal, maybe we'll go up five percent. How, how do you gauge the response to an election outcome that Modi wins? I think markets would skyrocket. Yeah, the, 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 you, you can see that. I mean, it's it's already been moving up in in anticipation to some extent mm -hmm. as the odds have moved uh, in 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 Modi's favor. So, see, last five years, market know what Modi is about, and more than anything else, markets hate uncertainty. <coughs> With a new leader, they would yeah. not know what would be there whether they would continue on the same sort of trajectory or they will have like a different approach to the economy, most likely they'll be somewhere in between. But there'll be an element of uncertainty. That doesn't mean India becomes a bad investment from a medium to long-term perspective. Again, any sort of a market correction, in my opinion, creates a good entry point into Indian markets. But if Modi comes back into the power, tactically, it'll become a very interesting trade to me as well. 
beyond just being strategic. I know uh, I, I always can count on Gaurav at our asset allocation meeting to say, <laughs> yeah, I like India. But then I bought, I had doubled my exposure to India at one point, and he had became bearish right after I bought it. So <laughs> now I'm a tend to be, I'm a long term, so I bought it. I haven't done anything with it since I did that. But uh, it's... Um, yeah, you know, the politics of India, you know, it is, it is quite interesting. You know, as you point out, in 2004, when the BJP lost on a surprise election, the market went down 20%. Close to 20, it may have been gone down 20%. Um, but the next, if you bought that, that was one of the greatest buying opportunities in India. It tripled in the next three, four, five years, right? So um, one thing is, because it's a democracy and because changing laws are not that easy, you know, um, that that there is generally a consensus, bedrock consensus about what we are doing. Um, so even if the parties change, um, there as, obviously there'll be a huge disappointment. There'll be a short-term shock. But from from a long term investor's point of view, actually, if that happens, it will be a great great buying opportunity. Um, in in that sense, any sectors or anything of the of the tactical variety things that you think are are good things, things you'd avoid there in India. I would say that anything, any sector that has exposure to consumers in India, because consumption is the rock solid foundation of India's economy, which is very different from being China. For decades, people have been talking about why China should be more inward focused and, you know, export oriented economy. India is already there. About 55% of India's GDP is all consumption. So sectors such as private financials, which have a lot of retail loans on their loan books, uh, Consumer sectors, of course, but consumer sectors are tad bit expensive if you are worried about valuations. So I think private financials, ex-state-owned companies, companies that where you know state ownership is not substantial, uh, uh, other companies and the sectors, in my opinion, that I would would be my top picks. Yeah, and I will also start looking at at uh, small caps and mid caps, which have not performed as well as the large caps. You know, they've had a long period of underperformance, really mm-hmm. long period. And part of the reason is domestic credit growth has been really tight. Now, once uh, partly because the banking sector has been has its own problems, plus the government was trying to clamp down on inflation. But once the elections are out of the whole way, um, credit is already picking up, and you will see banks or banks' health is also improving because they've recovered many of the bad loans, and the government is also recapitalizing them. So you will start credit to credit to start to pick up, and so the domestic um, sectors will tend to perform better, which is where the small caps and the and the mid caps are much more domestically oriented. Um, so, so you will start to see better performance out of them. This has been great. Srinivas, uh, this is our first time getting to know each other, but it's been a great conversation. Gaurav, always a uh, pleasure talking India. Um, and it's, it's going to be a very fascinating election coming up. It's great to get to know you, and I'm sure we'll have you back on to, to talk again. Thank you, Jeremy, and thank nice you, Gaurav. It Thanks, was very really nice talking to you. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.